0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Um, as you're finding it, let me mention, let me first say Happy Thanksgiving because I won't be here next week. In fact, right after church today, uh, my wife and children and I are are driving to Atlanta where we're getting on an airplane and flying to my uh, native country of California. It was just good to get the passport stamped yearly, just to make sure that's up to date. But um, we'll be uh, spending Thanksgiving with my family in California and returning uh, Monday, November 30th. So we're really grateful for that time. It's the first time, I think, in a long time that my children have been to my hometown outside of the summer. And my hometown's down in the valley in the bottom of California where it's about 115 degrees during the summer. So they don't know anything about uh, El Centro when it's uh, actually like not blazing hot. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but uh, but we'll miss you. Will Hawk is going to be preaching next week, continuing on in uh, the next portion in the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, however, we, we find ourselves a, at a text that is one of those texts that is just a challenge for us to think about as a body. John Stott, the uh, very well-known British pastor who recently passed away a few years ago. He pastored in England For many, many years during the 1900s, about 1950, for about 50 years, he pastored in a church there in London, spoke about this text and this issue of divorce as one of the most difficult passages for him as a pastor to preach on. And John Stott was known for not shying away from any difficult topic. He just marched his way through scripture and preached it expositionally, uh, just laying out God's truth for God's people. And the reason he said it so difficult is because this topic, this issue of divorce has touched so many of us in such painful ways. And so as, as we work through this text, uh, I want you to know that as a pastor, I've had many people in this congregation who I love dearly on my mind this week, knowing that working through this text would be a hard on you. Some of you that have been through a divorce years ago, or some maybe it's more fresh, or some that are in the middle of a very difficult marriage. And yet in God's kind providence, the Holy Spirit has this text for us on this Sunday for our good. The Word of God, this is a, this is a really a, a, a place of maturity for a Christian and for a church. To believe that the Word of God is not only true, but that it is completely good for us, often in ways that we don't suspect. And today, this text will be good for us. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us uh, to think deeply about this, to be encouraged. And ultimately, today, it's not primarily about divorce and remarriage. Ultimately, all of this is about the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. So let me pray. And as we pray, let's pray for our world, our nation, our president, this uh, horrible situation in France, the Syrian refugees. All of this is so complex, isn't it? But thank God that we, li- we know that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. A uh, pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, said that nothing can stop God's hand. He is in complete control. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we... As we open up your word, we are so grateful for uh, your Bible, for the word that you've given us. You've superintended it through the centuries, and you've caused to be written down and to be transmitted into hundreds and hundreds of languages exactly what you intend for your people to know, and your word is sufficient, it's good, it brings life, and it shows us all that we need for life and godliness and salvation, as Peter writes. Lord, help us now as we think about this challenging issue of divorce and how it is how it is torn at the hearts of so many people in this room. Virtually none of us are untouched by this issue. I pray that you'd give us grace and wisdom and fortitude and just a clarity as we stare at this truth. And I pray that we would connect it appropriately to the greatest truth of all, the gospel, what you have done in Christ to ransom a people for yourself. And Lord, we pray for our president this morning. We pray that you'd give him great wisdom. We thank you for our leaders that you have appointed over us. We pray for President Obama that you would give him and his cabinet and our military leaders and our Congress wisdom, especially as they think about national security and executing this war against these wicked and evil men that are wreaking havoc across the world. We pray that they would be stopped. We pray, Lord, for the people in Paris, for you to give them grace, and, Lord, for you to cause even this wickedness to bring about revival. Lord, we are, we are perplexed about what to do with refugees around the world, in particular Syrian refugees, and we pray for your grace for us to think about these issues wisely, uh, to be compassionate but yet discerning. Lord, these are complex issues and we thank you that you've given people to think deeply about these issues. We pray that you would give them wisdom and we pray for men and women even in this congregation who are deployed in dangerous places that are serving for us, for our protection, that you'd keep them safe and bring them home soon. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your text, the most profitable thing we could do this morning is to turn our hearts and our focus to your holy word and to make much of it and to submit ourselves to its truth and to be encouraged and convicted, to be wounded and healed by your glorious word. So help us this morning, we pray, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the salvation of any unbelievers that may be in this room, Lord, do your glorious work in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, is where we left off a few weeks ago. And remember, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's in a section here where he has said that he has not come to destroy the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And now, for the rest of chapter 5, he is going to correct in six instances. We're in the middle of those six instances. He's going to correct the Pharisees and the scribes Incorrect imp- interpretation of the Old Testament law, and one area where the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of his day, are incorrectly applying the law of the Old Testament, is this area in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, which we're going to read in a moment, where Moses uh, is is giving a teaching, a concession. He's giving instruction about how uh, men that divorce their wives, how these divorced women are to be treated, and the current Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day are wrongly applying that to be a kind of divorce for any reason sort of law, and Jesus is correcting their, their interpretation of that. So let me read, and then um, we'll, we'll unpack it. And from this text, I think we're going to see four truths arise that we'll have on the screen, four truths about divorce and ultimately about the gospel that, that I want us to see. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, well, now there are four places in the New Testament. Really only four places where divorce is mentioned. Here in Matthew chapter five, again in Matthew chapter nineteen, which we're gonna read, and then once in each of the other gospels, Mark and Luke. It's not mentioned in John, but in Mark chapter ten, which is very similar to Matthew nineteen, and then in Luke chapter sixteen, which is the only places in the New Testament where where it speaks about divorce. And then we're going to look at one other little section in 1 Corinthians 7, which I think has application as well. But the situation, the background of what Jesus is responding to is the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses is issuing a a sort of ruling or a, a stipulation about how men were to treat divorced wives. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 to get a feel for the context of what Jesus is responding to here. Deuteronomy chapter 24, let me read verses 1 through 4. Moses says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because, she, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And you shall not bring sin upon the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So that's really it. That's all that the Bible says in the Old Testament uh, about instruction regarding divorce. So what's going on there? The, uh, the Jewish leaders were basically broken down into two schools. Two schools of thought. Kind of like a conservative and a liberal school of teaching. The conservative uh, school of teaching said that they looked at what Moses said here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and they interpreted that, especially when he says in verse 1 that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that key phrase meaning that phrase there, some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her away, and then it goes on and on. They interpret that to mean that Um, that if he finds something immoral, like she has committed some indecency or sexual immorality. And so that was the conservative school, that if the wife uh, is unfaithful sexually to the husband, then he is allowed to, according to Moses, to give her this certificate of divorce. Then there was a liberal school of teaching that had a much different take on this, which was kind of the no-fault divorce crowd, and they read some indecency. What they interpreted that to mean was not just infidelity, but, you know, if she wasn't a good cook, or maybe she didn't really, there's even some writings, if she didn't wash the dishes good, or even if she, you know, kind of got old and didn't look quite like she did when you married her, and by way, isn't that so, so chauvinistic, you know, like any guy looks the same way he did. when I mean, you, you know, you, you, guess what, Jack? You look old too, by the way. But the the point is, is that it was a very liberal interpretation. It was basically, if he just, for any reason, she's not a good cook, she doesn't wash the dishes, she can't clean real good, just don't like her, the sound of her voice, she's just getting to my nerves, write her a certificate of divorce. Now, what's important to understand here is that is we're going to read in a bit when we read more about Jesus' more elaborate teaching on this from Matthew 19, is that Jesus is going to show these religious leaders that Moses is really just saying, because of the hardness of your heart, God is not prescribing divorce as something that he desires. He's giving this law to regulate divorce because divorce was a reality, right? And so this law was given, this, this teaching of Moses was given, not to endorse divorce, but to regulate its practice because women were being taken advantage of. And it sounds sort of strange to us, but what's going on here is that Moses is saying in Matthew or Deuteronomy chapter 24, that if one man divorces his wife, and then just for any reason, and she goes off and she marries another, she gets a dowry you know, for, for that second uh, marriage. And, it's, and then if that man divorces his wife, it's protecting the wife from then being remarried by the first husband who's just kind of remarrying her solely for the sake of getting her dowry, right? And so it was finance. This is just a concession by Moses to protect... Women, And that's the background. So Jesus has these people coming to him asking him, you know, which side do you stand on? Do you stand on the conservative side? Can you get a divorce for any reason for for sexual immorality? Or can you just get a divorce for any reason because of, you know, she's not a good cook. And as we're going to see in just a moment, when we get to Matthew 19, Jesus is actually going to go much deeper And he's going to take it to the heart of what marriage is even intended for. But first, let's deal with what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. He says in verse 31, let me read it again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So at least on the surface, Jesus is siding with the conservative wing of the Jewish teachers. He's saying that really because of the hardness of your heart, not because God wants this, but because realizing how painful infidelity can be, Jesus is saying that, yes, you can be divorced on the grounds of sexual immorality. And that leads us to our first truth. And it's this, truth number one from this text, is that divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment. And we're going to get to abandonment in just a second here from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Jesus is saying that this is not required. The Lord hates divorce. And as we'll read in Matthew 19, because of the hardness of our hearts, because it's so painful, sometimes this infidelity, that it is permitted on the grounds of sexual immorality. So then the question is, what is sexual immorality? What qualifies as sexual immorality? Well, in the original language that Jesus spoke this in the Bible, is it written, it's a, it's a word that porneia, that means really encompasses all forms of sexual immorality. Uh, it includes, I think, chronic infidelity. It includes chronic pornography use. I don't think that the heart here is uh, is uh, just a sort of one-time um, event but there's this sense that Jesus is saying that like God who has been long suffering with his bride we are to be long suffering with our spouses as well and by the way this goes goes both ways it's it's a man and a woman and a woman and a man depending on who the offender is in the marriage and Jesus is saying that because of the hardness of our hearts because sometimes the the bond has been so wounded That God in his gracious kindness does permit but doesn't require the marriage bond to be dissolved. So divorce is permitted, Jesus clearly says, but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment. What do we mean by abandonment? Well, the only other place where uh, divorce is alluded to in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul is teaching about marriage. And so listen to what the Apostle Paul, he adds another uh, stipulation about when divorce may be permissible. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, in parentheses there, and that doesn't mean that Paul is sort of stopping being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's saying that the Lord didn't directly teach on this, meaning Jesus during his life on the earth did not directly teach on this. So it's not like what comes next is all of a sudden just Paul's thoughts and not the Holy Spirit's. He's saying that Jesus didn't directly teach on this, but it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Because this is the question, excuse me, that's going on, is that Paul is bringing the gospel to these Gentile pagan peoples and uh, they are two unbelievers that are in a marriage. One of them becomes a Christian, and the, one of the, the, the partners in the marriage is still not a Christian. And the question they were bringing to Paul was, look, we're not supposed to be married to unbelievers, which we see later on in the chapter. What should we do? Should we get out of this unequally yoked marriage? And Paul is saying, No stay in that marriage and God will use you Lord willing to be a witness to your spouse. So he says stay in it if that person will stay in the marriage with you. Verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, what's going on there, that's a complex verse. Jesus is not just saying that if you happen to be married to a believer, you're sort of all of a sudden sanctified. What he's saying is, is that it is, it is not unlawful for you to touch this unclean thing, this, this unbeliever in your marriage. And so you are permitted, if you are in a marriage where you're a believer and your spouse is not, and your children are not, you are permitted to have fellowship with them. And then he says in verse, uh, in verse 15, and here's the important verse, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, meaning the believing spouse, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so Paul there offers another stipulation where the believer is free to dissolve the marriage. And the situation clearly is that if you find yourself in a marriage where you are a believer and your spouse is not, and they abandon the marriage, they leave, they desert the marriage, then you, certainly after a period of hoping and trying to reconcile You do not need to live in a perpetual state of separation from that spouse who has abandoned the marriage. And Paul clearly teaches that you are not enslaved or you are free. And so we add that together with this one permissible situation that Jesus says here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment. And let's pause there and say that, again, This is not divorce isn't required in those situations. But because God in His kindness knows that we are weak and that it is incredibly difficult to bear up in those situations, God is saying that divorce in those two and only two scenarios is permissible that means that there are no other grounds biblically for divorce none irreconcilable differences is not a biblical difference or a biblical reason for divorce we've grown apart is not a biblical reason for divorce he or she doesn't understand me anymore, is not a biblical reason for divorce. I married the wrong person is not a biblical... We always marry the wrong person. Right? I mean, everybody's broken. And this whole idea of a a soulmate, do you realize that if... Let's just, let's just gather up the whole population of the earth, right? let think about this now. I know I'm about to... I'm going to get some emails on some romantics here that watch the Lifetime Movie Network for women all the time, and I'm, but I'm prepared. I'm going out of town. I got a little vacation responder on my email, so just... <laughs> but do you realize that if we gathered up all the people in the world and we went with this notion that there was just one perfect person for you out there to marry... If one person ends up marrying the wrong person, that messes it up for everybody else. Just do the math. Because if one 25-year-old person in Lithuania marries the wrong person, then that means that they took somebody else's spouse who should have been yours. And then the dominoes start to fall throughout the seven people, seven billion people on the planet, and it's ruined for everybody. So you are. Like you always marry the wrong person, we're broken, we are jacked up, and isn't it just sort of convenient when life gets tough, when we can just sort of throw that out there? There's not a married person in here that's been married for more than a week who hasn't wondered, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) And full disclosure, I'm sure Jennifer's wondered that a whole lot more than I've ever wondered that, right? (laughs) Right? Friends, there are no other biblical grounds for divorce. And isn't it the inclination of our hearts to justify and here, no, I know like listen, like I've sat in this room in the room in this church with, with, with numerous, numerous people who are in a difficult situation. My heart is going out to you if you were in that difficult situation right now. I just want you to understand, my heart is so like this. Aren't our hearts just so geared to come up with a unique situation that is ours, that is just a one little out? I mean, aren't we, aren't we so prone to just justify our circumstance as the one exception, Right? And friends, beware of that inclination of your flesh to always sort of position your circumstance as the one little exception. There are no other biblical grounds for divorce, none. The question may arise, and it's a good one, well, what about cases of physical abuse where maybe the husband is is abusing the wife? Well, certainly in that situation, obviously, separation for protection of the wife is in order. And in that situation, I would argue that that follows, falls under 1 Corinthians 7 about abandonment. Because abandonment is not just necessarily physical abandonment. Oftentimes, it's spiritual and emotional abandonment. And so I'm not, I'm not, that, that falls under that clause. And when a husband is non-repentant in that situation, I think that person is showing themselves maybe ultimately to not be a believer And that would fall under 1 Corinthians 7. So divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment, which leads to the second truth, is that remarriage after a divorce on biblical grounds is permissible. Although it's not directly stated, I think that that is implied. Remarriage after a divorce on biblical grounds is permissible. So Jesus is saying there that if you divorce your wife or your spouse and if you then uh, she, you, you make her commit adultery if she marries again except on the grounds of this sexual immorality or in First Corinthians 7 except on the grounds of abandonment now granted there are many uh, I think, I think my position, our position as a church on this is the majority position of conservative Christians across the world but I want to certainly note that there are many conservative Bible teachers and scholars that would disagree and hold a more conservative view on this, that any remarriage after divorce for any reason is not permissible. I think that implied in Jesus' exception of sexual immorality and then implied in Paul's uh, exception of abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7 implies that remarriage after a divorce on biblical grounds is permissible. So notice back in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, it says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And I think bound up on that, if we took time to read the rest of the chapter, he talks further on then. If a a believing uh, uh, spouse, if they're their wife or husband dies, that then they are free or not enslaved to marry again after their, their partner, their, their spouse uh, dies. I think uh, we, could, we could go a lot deeper in this, but I think what is implied there is that we are not enslaved to stay bound to that covenant that has been broken and we are free to marry. But again, we must check our hearts. Like if, do we just want an out clause so that we can kind of move on with our lives? We need to check our hearts on this. Remarriage after a divorce on biblical grounds, I believe, is permissible, which then, just as a sort of sub-truth under that, that remarriage after a divorce without biblical grounds is not permissible. And so if your marriage has been dissolved for reasons, unbiblical reasons, other than chronic sexual infidelity and or abandonment, I think that the Scriptures are clear that to marry again results in adultery for both people involved in the unbiblical remarriage. In other words, if you've if you've never been married and you marry someone who's been divorced without biblical grounds, I think that results in adultery. That results in adultery. Having said that, Christians, listen to me carefully, Christians who are in an un who went through an unbiblical divorce and are now remarried, which they shouldn't have been remarried biblically. If they find themselves in that situation, they should this is the first time that they're hearing that truth, or if it's still sort of rattling around or repent, receive forgiveness and grace, and remain as you are. Don't think, "Oh my gosh. I shouldn't have ever, I shouldn't have got divorced in the first place to spouse one. Divorced him for unbiblical reasons. Now, 10 years later, I'm married to this person right now. The question may arise in our heads, are we in a perpetual state of like adultery? Do we need to now dissolve this marriage and then go, no. Can you imagine the havoc that would be wreaked on families and relationships? I think the The wisdom of the scriptures is to, no, remain as you are. Repent and remain as you are. Stay in the marriage that you are in now and glorify God in it. That second marriage, even if it did not start out biblically justified, should not be thought of as continually living in adultery. Stay where you are and serve God. Listen to me, friends, and I want you to hear this. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Hear me on that. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. You do not need to wear a scarlet letter D on your shirt for the rest of your life, as if that is what marks you now. Didn't we just sing it? What did we sing? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And so if you are in this rut where where you, you because of just bad teaching or just maybe a legalistic culture or just whatever. You you have, you're in this rut where you're just feeling this constant condemnation about your divorce. Dear one, know that it is not the unpardonable sin. You may need to, for the first time, truly repent of that and run to the cross and be renewed and hear and know the words of God's grace in the gospel, but you need not live in that continued condemnation because when you do, you actually unwind the gospel itself. Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, remarriage after divorce on biblical grounds is permissible, which then gets us to, I think, what Jesus is trying to get us to in the first place, which leads us to truth number three. And it is this, that marriage is meant to display the covenant-keeping love of God. So let's read what Jesus says about this issue in a deeper way in Matthew 19. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 19, where this is taught on in a more elaborate way in the Scriptures. Verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, And the Pharisees come up to him, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're wondering, are you going to side with the conservatives or the liberal, or liberals? Can you be divorced for some sexual immorality or just any reason? Because she's not a good cook or doesn't wash the dishes well. And he answered them. He actually doesn't answer their question directly. He takes them back to the whole purpose of marriage. Not, he, they wanted to test him on divorce. And he wanted to bring them back to the very purposes of marriage. Verse 4. He answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another and commits adultery. So what does Jesus do? He takes them back to the whole purpose for... They want instruction on how to mitigate divorce. And he takes them back to the purposes for marriage. And he grounds marriage... In the created order. He's saying that God made them male and female. By the way, this is actually a wonderful a truth, a very important truth, as to why I think Christians should biblically be opposed to so-called same-sex marriage, which is not really marriage at all. Jesus is saying that marriage is intended to... It's, 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 it's rooted in the created order of how men and women were created and how they shall become one flesh. Now, we're not going to break out the whiteboard and draw any pictures, but do 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 you understand what Jesus is saying there? That the two shall become one flesh. In fact, the very way that they are created, their bodies fit together, and the way their bodies fit together is meant to display something greater than just earthly intimacy. It's meant to display the union that Jesus has with his bride, the church, and how we are spiritually one in Christ. And so Jesus is teaching them that the reason why divorce is so painful is because marriage is about something bigger than just societal norms or the functioning of families. It is meant to, To display the gospel. It's meant to display the covenant-keeping love of God. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Probably the most important and the lengthiest passage in the Bible on marriage. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says this, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, listen to this men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love wives as their own bodies. Love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, verse 32, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a kind of earthly picture of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Husbands, you are playing the role of the Christ-like head. And wives, you are playing the role of the church that is to submit and adore her husband, ultimately Jesus. And you see what Paul is doing? He's saying that marriage is meant to display something bigger than just our earthly happiness. That's why the tearing away of our temporary marriages has such a more profound impact on our souls because it cuts against the grain of the very display of God's saving grace to the universe through his relationship of his son with the bride, the church. And marriage is meant to display this. And that brings us to our final truth, and we'll end on this, is that marriage is more for our holiness than for our temporary happiness. I want you to see this parallel between God's purposes in allowing for our sanctification to be rugged and slow as as individuals and God allowing our marriages to be difficult and yet Him calling us to see the greater purpose in our difficult marriages and to hang in there and to endure and to do something more than live for our own desires but to live for the display of the gospel. We read about in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, it says that, he says, work out, Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Have you ever wondered, I'm sure you have, if you've been a Christian for more than a few minutes, why God doesn't just snap his fingers once you become a Christian and make your fight with sin a little bit easier? Has anybody ever wondered that, or am I the only like wimpy Christian in the crowd, right? You're like... No, life? No, okay, thank you. A couple. Of the, I'll take your little nervous laughs as admission that you find sanctification challenging as well, right? Okay, thank you. Have you ever thought, why would God just not beam me up, Scotty, you know? Right? Why would God allow us to struggle? And then why, like in Colossians 3, would, 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 would Paul say things like in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's speaking to Christians who have already been born again, who have this new heart, but yet they have to continue to make war against the flesh. You have to put it to death. Why would Paul then say in Romans 8? The greatest chapter in the Bible. Why would he say in verse 12, So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why does God leave us here to fight this rugged, hard battle against our remaining sin? Why does he do that? He does that in the life of every individual believer to put on display the surpassing worth of Christ. So he saves you in one moment. And for most of us, he leaves us here for decades and decades and decades when he could just beam us up and take us home or make us instantly perfect. But he lets us go through this slow, rugged Callous forming process of sanctification. Why? Not to mess with us or to, to say, oh, you better get it right, but so that through our rugged lives, He puts us on display in front of other people so that we, through our fight against remaining sin, display to an onlooking world that there is something better than giving in to these broken old desires. Do you see that? Friends, if you see that, that's the point. That's the reason you roll up your sleeves every morning and you fight sin. And God leaves us there so that through our lives, he displays the surpassing worth of Christ. In the same way, and by the way, let me pause here, pause button, back to this. All of that is under God's sovereign providential plan. He planned for that in eternity past. It's not like God said, oh my gosh, Genesis 3 happened and there's this fall. We got to do something to correct it. Jesus I'm gonna send you down to live a perfect life, die on the cross, bear the sin for all that would ever repent and turn and trust in you, rise again in victory, and then it'll be okay. Oh no, they're still messed up. What are we gonna do now? No, all of this, the ruggedness of your sanctification The battle that we still fight with sin is planned by God in eternity past. Nothing sneaks up on God. He's not reacting to anything. It's all part of His display of His glorious grace in some mysterious and wise and good way. And in the same way, God has ordained marriage knowing that He's going to put two people together and it's going to be awesome for a week on the honeymoon. And then they're going to wake up and say, Aah! What have I done? Do you think the Trinity is up there? In eternity past having ordained that he would create a man and a woman physiologically in such a way that their bodies would fit together which is imaging some deeper eternal spiritual reality that we are to be united with our husband Jesus the heavenly groom forever do you think that God has this whole plan not knowing that marriage is going to be incredibly difficult not knowing that the first marriage is going to be tempted in the garden and the snake the serpent is going to come and destroy not not knowing how hard it is to live with another sinner who's just as jacked up as you are, do you not think that God in his kind and good providence hasn't planned for that in some mysterious and wise way? He has, dear friend, he has. And he is saying to us today that marriage, even in its struggle and its hardness, is part of his redemptive plan to show the surpassing worth of Christ that as two broken sinners roll up their sleeves and say, I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to hold fast. He does something bigger and better than our, our fantasies of a fairy tale life. He does something bigger and better than that. He puts the gospel on display in and through our lives. If you find yourself hoping for the dissolving of your marriage, if you find yourself on the last thread, can I plead with you, brother or sister, to count the cost? Despair Always lies. It always makes it seem impossible. That is not true. Resolve to fight for your marriage, resolve to stay in it, resolve to get help, resolve to display the gospel. Gather people around you that can encourage you. If your marriage has already been dissolved, And you are in this perpetual state of condemnation. Preach the gospel to your own soul. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Receive the grace of God. And from this day on, resolve to glorify God in your life, in your relationships, in the rest of the years that God gives you. Listen to this quote from John Piper and we'll end on this. Piper, a very well-known pastor from Minneapolis, wrote a book called This Momentary Marriage and he ends the book with this quote which I have found so, so encouraging to me. Very soon the shadow will give way to the reality and the point he's making there is that marriage is like a temporary shadow. It's earthly. We we will we, there will be no marriage in heaven. Jesus says that that that, that there is no marriage in the resurrection. So marriage is beautiful and as powerful and as wonderful it is is just a temporary earthly shadow that gives way to the thing that it's pointing to, which is the heavenly groom Jesus and his bride the Christ and his and his bride the church. So he says very soon the shadow will give way to the reality. The partial will pass into the perfect the foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all and in all, and the purpose of marriage will be complete. To that end, May God give us eyes to see what matters most in this life. May the Holy Spirit, whom He sends, make His crucified and risen Son the supreme treasure of our lives. And may that treasure so satisfy our souls that the root of every marriage-destroying impulse is severed. And may the marriage-watching world be captivated by the covenant-keeping keep, love of Christ, even as we endure less than fairy tale marriages. Let's pray. Father, all of these words, whatever has been true and helpful, let it stick fast. Anything that has been off or not on point, let it fall to the ground. But all of these words could be followed up with a thousand more details and nuance and further explanation. Father, it's impossible to diagram and dissect and think deeply about every situation that each person in this room is facing. Lord, would you go beyond what we can do in just a short time with one another? And would your Holy Spirit put steel in our spines and love in our hearts so that we can endure for the sake of the display of the covenant-keeping love of Christ. Lord, for marriages in this room that are on the brink, you delight in doing the impossible. In fact, every time you have ever saved any person, it has you have worked the impossible. You have brought something that was dead, which is what our hearts were in sin, and you've made them alive. And Lord, that's the same thing you do when you rescue a marriage from the brink of despair. You bring it back to life, God. You can do it. And so that person that is in this room today saying that, no, you don't know. My situation is too far gone. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you blow away the scales from their eyes and would you give them hope to just know that the way they feel is not true. You can do whatever You want. And God, you have called us to roll up our sleeves and fight for the display of the glory of God in our marriages. God, for the person in this room whose marriage is already dissolved and they are feeling that condemnation and that dread and that despair, Lord, I pray that the loudest note they would hear this morning is Romans 8 1 that those who are in Christ therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that the enemy who wants to whisper discouragement to their soul God let them know that that is not true that you are a good and gracious God and that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains and God I pray that Collectively, this church and this congregation and this little city on a hill would be good soil, a good place, a place where we can be honest about our struggles, a place where a husband and wife that are that just at each other's throats behind closed doors, but when they walk in the doors of this church, they feel this strange religious pressure to be awesome and happy, and it's just eating away at their soul. God, if there's any hypocrisy or religious junk in our culture in this church. Let it fall to the ground and let this place be a type of just good soil where people can be real and where broken people can come and be made whole. God, I pray that you would connect a struggling marriage with a strong marriage and that you would breathe life into this homes all across this sanctuary and that people would hold on because there is something bigger going on here than our childhood fantasy there's something bigger going on than our temporary happiness and it is the display of the covenant keeping love of Christ and therein is where true joy is found give us that type of resolve I pray